Okay, if you have your Bibles, would you open to the book of Acts, please? The book of Acts. Um, Yeah, one minute. If you've been joining us over the last number of weeks, you heard me say when I came back from sabbatical a few weeks ago that the first few weeks that I was back, I was going to do some ad hoc messages, basically what I felt God put on my heart um, that spoke to me and hopefully would speak to the church at large, the larger church um, as a whole, I should say. Um, We spent a few weeks talking about those things. We spent a few weeks ago talking about physical versus spiritual eyes. That you remember Jesus said that the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for what? Nothing. We talked about that. Uh, Then we talked about worshiping God in spirit and in truth and what it means to worship God in the truth of his word. What does it mean to understand the truth of God's word? Because he's looking for worshipers that are rooted in the truth of God's word. But he's also looking for people that are going to worship God in spirit, which is through the demonstration and the practice of the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? And he's looking for both. And we're very polarizing as people. If you notice in this world, people want you to be for or against something, and there isn't a lot of room in the middle. And Jesus was very clear in saying real worship begins with a full life that's committed and turned over to him, where our minds or our souls are being renewed. And from that comes a change in our physical and a change in our spiritual where we worship him in spirit and we worship him in truth. And then last week when we were during our outdoor service, and, and it was just so much fun to see so many different people here last week, um, we talked just about the goodness and the greatness of God, how great is God, and we talked about different attributes of God. Um, so those were a few things that were on my heart um, when I came back, but I did know that we needed to turn a corner and we needed to go back into a series. Um, If you were with us the beginning of this past year, you know for many, many months we were walking through the book of Romans and we did the Rooted series, staying foundationally rooted in the truth of God's word. And uh, that was very formational for me, um, not just because, you know, I was doing a lot of the digging and the studying and everything, but it was a reminder of the foundations, the reminder of the theological foundations of who a Christian really is supposed to be. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does God's word say about that? Because everyone has opinions about this. What does God's word say about that? And that's why we did that. So we're turning a corner and we're going into another series and the series will last for some time. Uh, It is called uh, The Church in Motion. And we're going to break it up into three different series. The first series is The Church in Motion Unleashed where we're looking at the first two chapters of the book of Acts. We are going to take the next many, many weeks and go through the entire book of Acts. It won't be verse by verse. It won't be every other verse. It's going to be broken up. I have the plan broken up, and we're going to make little changes here and there. But here's why we're doing this and why I think this is important for the church, especially in the season that we're in today, right now in the climate that we're in. This past week, I was talking to my wife, and uh, I, um, I realized that uh, in the last two months, I performed a wedding that doesn't mean I pretended to get married. I mean, I actually officiated a wedding, okay? <laughs> um, and I attended two different weddings uh, over the last few weeks. And every time we are a part of one of these celebrations and one of these events, we're always, when we're in the car, we go back and we, tr- we travel on the way home and we talk about um, what it was like when we got married. Some of you maybe have had these experiences. You know, you go to a wedding ceremony and you see the, you know, the bride is walking down the aisle and she's all, you know, 
done up and beautiful, and, you know, and the groom's trying to hold it together, and, and the groom's, uh, the bride's dad is going, my Lord, how expensive this, no, and he, he's very, you know, every, everyone's very excited about this, and it's a party, and it's a celebration, and, and, and everyone's like sky high, super excited, celebration, a lot of fun, and there's something very beautiful about the beginnings of a marriage. You know what I'm talking about? Because if there's nothing beautiful about the beginnings of your marriage, you probably should rethink getting married. There's something very beautiful about that. And I'm sharing that with you not because 30, 40, 50 years later, marriage is supposed to be dull, dry, and boring. It shouldn't. You know, It's supposed to continue, but it deepens in a different way. You know what I'm saying? Like The beauty is still there, but it gets deeper, and it gets more enriched, and it's less on the surface. And when you look at your spouse and you say, like, you love them, it's not just, I love you. You know, it's like decades of like, like we're in this together. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what it's supposed to be like. And we were talking about this because every time we go to one of these events, it always brings us back to remind us about those early days. And I was thinking about that, that how easy it is to let everything around us influence what we remember from those days. How easy it is to let hardship influence that. How easy it is to let selfishness influence that and not in a positive way. How easy it is, you know, I love you young children, but how easy it is to let children influence that. Children are God's gift, but they are also incredibly stressful. Right? If you're listening to me and you're not saying amen, you have a problem. Okay? You don't have kids, you know, or maybe you don't understand kids, but they're they're stressful. You know, and I was a kid. I remember the stress I caused on my parents. I remember when my wife and I were getting married that my mom looked at my wife and she said, before we were married, she goes, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> and my wife said, yeah. She goes, he can be very difficult to live with. You know, and my mom, like, she just called it as she saw it, you know, unless it was like, yeah, I, I know this, um, but now she really knows it. Um, but, but my mom was warning her, you know, in advance. And my point is saying is that every age we have different struggles. And if we're not careful, we can lose the beauty of the beginnings. And that's why we're doing this series on Acts. The beauty of the beginnings is what we're going back to. What was the church of Jesus Christ all about? When the church was birthed, and we're going to the book of Acts, when the church was birthed, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose again. He revealed himself to his disciples. He ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit came upon the church, and the world was forever changed. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you know what it looks like? Because here's what I think we need to do, and I'm speaking we, I'm involved in this. As we walk through this series together, my hope for you and my hope for me is that we look at what God did in the early church, and we are reminded of something which is super powerful, which is this. We are still that church. Thousands of years later, the New Testament church is still today. We're not talking about Israel before Christ in another world. They don't understand our culture. We don't understand theirs. We are the New Testament church today, just like the New Testament church existed 2,000 years ago. And God has a purpose and a plan for us. And the purpose has always been for the church to be in motion, to change the world. You with me? So speaking about the book of Acts is important for us to understand the foundations of why we are who we are. And that's what my hope is, that we would understand it, we would internalize that, we would let God talk to us about who we are, and we would do some comparisons. Just like maybe we look at our current marriages, if you've been married for you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and say, when I go to a, 
a wedding today and I look at my current marriage and I look at that wedding happening, like what's the same and what's different? Sometimes it's good for us to do a side-by-side comparison to evaluate and see what God is trying to teach us. So that's what we're going to do. Um, So what I I want to do this morning is I want to give you a little bit of background about why the book of Acts is so incredible. And then I want to jump right into it this morning and start talking about some of the principles that we see. And every week we do this, you're going to see a character or an attribute in the book of Acts that directly applied to the New Testament church 2,000 years ago and directly applies to us today. What I love about this book is that it's not like we're looking at something that worked for people and applied for people thousands of years ago, but our culture is just so different. It clearly doesn't apply to us. It is exactly the same application for us today as it was for them when the church was birthed. So let me talk to you a few moments about Acts this morning, about why I'm so excited about talking about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a highly researched narrative, okay? A narrative is a story that is told, a narration, historically reporting things that happened during a period of time. It talks about the beginnings of the church, and it was written by a man named Luke. Some of you have heard this name, Luke. He actually wrote another book in the New Testament. Does anyone know what book Luke wrote? The book of Look, these are smart people this morning. Pastor Rob, I don't know what you were talking about, but no, no, I'm just kidding. He wrote the book of Luke, and actually he didn't just write a book. What most people believe is that he wrote them together. So it's actually when they talk about the two books that Luke wrote, he actually wrote the book they say Luke-Acts. They come together many times and they put them together, Luke-Acts. But Luke was a physician. He was a historian. He was a theologian. And he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So he was super smart. He did his research. He interviewed many people and he had firsthand knowledge on what was happening through the Apostle Paul because he was a companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, Luke was the last friend to stay with the Apostle Paul before he died in Rome. So he recorded in extensive detail the works of Jesus and the early church and he brought it to what many would say would be a perfect understanding. I love the book of Acts because it's full of adventure. If you like adventure, any adventure seekers here in this this place this morning? Adventure is all through the book of Acts. The book of Acts chronicles 33 years of the church's history. The first 33 years of the church's history is in the book of Acts. There are 32 countries mentioned in the book of Acts. There are 54 cities. There are nine islands and over 90 people mentioned throughout the entire book. It is the third largest New Testament book. And Luke-Acts together, the books together that Luke wrote, comprise over 30% of the entire New Testament. So you're like, okay, that's great facts. I'm telling you this because numbers get me excited. Okay, so if you're with me and you like that, awesome. If you don't, put it to the side and we'll get into something hopefully that stirs you and gets you excited. But like I said, it's part of a two-part library, Luke-Acts, and this is how they come together. Because the goal of Luke was always to show you that God has been at work. That's what Luke's purpose was in writing both of these books. In the Gospel of Luke, he talked about what Jesus did. How God is at work. What did Jesus do? And in the book of Luke, you see what Jesus did. He talks about his humanness. He talks about his divine nature and his purpose. And there's recorded clear evidence to present the truth that Jesus was and is divine, that he was a son of God. So in Luke, it was what did Jesus do? In the book of Acts, we see what Jesus will continue to do through his church. 
And that's how they come together. What did Jesus do in Luke? And what is Jesus going to continue to do and accomplish through his church? The Acts of the Apostles. So, Luke was prompted to write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it was to fulfill the need of the Gentile church, to fulfill an account of the beginnings of Christianity. He was explaining to people outside Israel who this church was, how this church worked, and how the New Testament church is supposed to live moving forward. Okay, so really powerful stuff. And this is why I'm excited about it. I told you it talks about the first 30 years of the church, but it really is demonstrating to the world, okay, what it looks like when the church truly demonstrates the love and the power of God through the restored relationship we have through Jesus Christ. If you want to look at what the church is supposed to be about, go to the book of Acts and you will see how the church is supposed to live. So we're breaking this up into three different parts, three different sub-series, if you will. The first two weeks will be Unleashed, the beginnings, the birthplace of the church. Then we're going to shift and we're going to look at the church unhindered. And we're going to see what unhindered, uh, what an unhindered church looks like for the, for, for the next number of chapters. And then the, the last part of our series, we're going to look at the church unstoppable. And we're going to see how God took the gospel message of Christ to the entire world and things that we can learn from that. So this morning, we're going to look at the first thing in chapter one. And the question is, what made the church of Jesus Christ a church in motion? What made the church of Jesus Christ a church in motion? And the answer is this, remember, applicable for then and applicable for today, that the church in motion is the church on mission. The church in motion is the church on mission. We're going to read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, and I'm just going to ask if you'd please just walk alongside with me as we do this. But before we do it, I want to just ask you right now, we're we're not going to read the scriptures. I want to make sure that our hearts and our minds are pointed towards the reading of God's word, that we take a moment, that we quiet ourselves, and we invite God's spirit to speak through us through this. Amen? So would you just bow your heads with me, please, as we get ready to read God's scripture. Lord, we just come before you this morning, and I want to ask you this morning that as we read your word, we would be reminded that we're not just here for a teaching. This isn't a lecture. It's not a teaching. It's not just a moment that we punch a time clock or a time card, but it's an opportunity to hear the voice of God through your living word. God, I pray as we open this book and we read what Luke wrote, inspired by your spirit, that it wouldn't just fill our minds, but it really would transform our hearts that we would see things we've never seen before. God, I pray every person that's following this morning, whether they're here in person, online, or listening through podcasts, Lord, I just pray that everybody that is listening to this word would have that moment where your spirit jumps out on them and opens their eyes to something they've never seen, speaks to their heart, and that they would be changed. In your name I pray. Okay, let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 1. Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus is a man he's talking to. And what was Luke's former book, by the way? Good, you're with me. Good. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. First thing I said before we opened up the scripture was that the church in motion is a church on mission. This comes from the verse in Acts 1.8. The verse in Acts 1.8 specifically said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what did he say? Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I haven't had a a lot of opportunity in my life to be next to someone that is getting ready to leave this world and enter an eternity. It's happened a few times, but I haven't had a tremendous amount of opportunity to do this. But here's what I can tell you, what I've seen in my own experiences and the things I've read and the people I've talked to. The last words someone tells you before they leave this earth are going to be some of the most important words you'll ever hear from them. Because they're not going to mince words. They're not going to waste their breath on things that don't matter. They're going to say things to you that are so important that they want you to hear because they won't have another opportunity to share that with you again. I'm telling this to you because these are some of the last words Jesus told his disciples before he ascended back to heaven. You are going to receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, church, that's what he's telling them. And you will be my what? Witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they lived, in Judea, which was the southern region of Israel, in Samaria, which was all of Israel, and the ends of the earth, which was everyone who had no Jewish history at all. You are going to change the world by being my witness, and my witness is going to be empowered through the Holy Spirit. Famous words that Jesus said. Pretty powerful, isn't it? This is what he's telling uneducated, everyday people that simply spent time with Jesus. So why am I sharing that? Because he gave his disciples a very clear mission. I'm leaving, but your mission is to go and change the world with the gospel. Go and be my witness. Go and change the world. Now, witness can mean a lot of different things. The actual word here, witness comes from the Greek word uh, martus, okay? Martus. And if you're thinking that sounds familiar, it's the word that we derive martyr from, 
Okay? Now, it doesn't always mean martyr in the sense that we understand martyr, but it really means someone who sees an event and reports what has happened truthfully, but it has a legal sense and a legal understanding behind it. Meaning that when you are witnessing and you are standing as a witness for someone, what you are saying is true, is accurate, and you are doing it with a legal obligation to be true and to be accurate. So what he's telling the people and he's telling his disciples are, your role is to truthfully, authentically, and accurately represent me to the world. You with me? We good? Think about that for a moment. That's the witness and the mission of the church. Truthfully, accurately, authentically represent Christ to the world. And you're going to do it because the Holy Spirit is going to help you do it. That they're supposed to share what they know, but to live how they've been changed. Some people always associate witness with evangelism. Like you have to just preach from a box or a pulpit or something. And that's a component of witness. But he's not just talking about the spoken word that you share, that you speak. There is a huge piece of that, and we're going to talk about that. What he's saying is true witnesses of Christ True witnesses of Christ. The New Testament church is supposed to embody Jesus for everyone else to see. You hear me? We are supposed to, we may be the only Jesus the world ever sees, is what he's really saying. Because Jesus is no longer physically in that place. He says the Spirit is going to come. He's going to empower you. And that's why he told his disciples in Mark, you're going to do greater things than I ever did. Not because we're going to be more powerful than Jesus, but because the Spirit of God will go with the believers everywhere they go across the world. Listen, when Jesus was in Galilee, where was Jesus? It's not a trick question. In Galilee, right? When Jesus was in Nazareth, where was Jesus? Nazareth, you're getting it. When Jesus was in anywhere, Capernaum, where was Jesus? Capernaum. And when he was in Capernaum, he wasn't in Galilee. And when he was in Galilee, he wasn't in in Nazareth. But when the Spirit of God comes and he ascends to heaven, the presence of God would dwell in the heart of all who believed. And when the presence and the power of God dwells in you, wherever you go, wherever I go, the power of God goes too. You hear what I'm saying? This is important for us to understand. That's why he's saying you're going to do greater things. Not because I'm more powerful than Jesus. No, because wherever I go, the Spirit of God will be with me. And what he's saying is, and that's your mission, church. Your mission is to take my power, to take my message, to take the Spirit of God and be Jesus to everyone you witness to, everyone you serve, everyone you love, everyone you work with, to be the hands and feet of Christ. You tracking with me okay so far this morning? This is like... Some people may have heard this, and you know, listen, I've, Acts was my favorite book to go through when I was in seminary, and I love reading and studying through the book of Acts and the work of the Holy Spirit. I love it, love it, love it. And I've read this hundreds and hundreds of times. But every time I think about it, I, two things happen. One, I get really, really excited about that, and I go, that's incredible. And then I stop for a minute, and I look at myself, and I go, yeah, but am I doing it? You know what I mean? So it's not just me talking to people saying, you must do this. I listen to it, and I go, this is amazing. And then I go, what about me? What am I doing? Am I embodying this, Jesus? Teach me how to be an effective witness. Because I'm being really honest, it seems like it's an impossible task. And can I tell you, if there wasn't 
the Spirit of God that empowers all believers. And we're going to get there next week. Next week is going to be woohoo Sunday. Okay? And we're going to talk about that later. But today, where we're talking about the mission, if I had to walk this mission out in my own strength, I'd feel absolutely powerless to do it. It's impossible because I'm human and I'm imperfect. And I fail over and over and over again. But Jesus gives these words to his disciples, to the New Testament church, which we currently are. And he says, your mission in this world, hear me, please. Your mission in this world is not to raise a family, get a good education, get a good job, grow your retirement, and then die and leave it to the next generation. That's not a bad thing. We have biblical examples of what it means to be responsible and to raise godly kids and to leave an inheritance for your kids. Those are all not ungodly things. But we have taken in this world the physical definition of a mission and we've replaced God's mission for the church with something that's temporary. It's not your mission to live your best life now. It's not your mission in this world to just be good to everybody. That's not the mission. Just sow a little kindness and goodness. That's not the mission of the church. When we become followers of Christ, the mission of the church is to embody Jesus, to be the representation of Christ to everywhere we go, which means when I'm in church on Sunday morning, I'm supposed to embody and look like Jesus. That's my witness it means, it means that when I'm at work and hypothetically my boss is doing something or saying something that I don't necessarily agree with or like, that I still embody Jesus. It means when I'm driving down the road and that person is being less than kind, I'm still embodying Jesus. It means when I'm going through trials or struggles or wrestling with fear, My mission is to still embody and model Jesus. This is what it looks like. God is someone who, through his spirit, becomes the center of our lives. He becomes the foundation of our lives, right? You hear what I'm saying? The core of who we are is supposed to look like Jesus all around us. All around us. And yet... We lose that sometimes. I lose that sometimes. I mean, just just last night, I love being transparent. You're like, you can judge me if you want. I don't care. Um, <laughs> so my wife and I, we went to a to a school event last night at a school. There was a high school doing like some band competition, and uh, we got there really late because we went to the wrong place, and and we just got there in time to get to the end. And they charge you to get into these places, and um, they're expensive. To get into these places. I was like, wow, I'm like, this is expensive. And I knew that it was going to be something. But we're walking up to the gate. And my wife says, she goes, Paul, they're going to charge us for this. You know, I'm like, that's like, they only have like one more band left. You really think they're going to charge us? She goes, yeah, this is how they make their money. And we're walking up. And in my gut, I'm walking up. I'm like, they're going to charge us? Like, people have been here for two hours. And they're going to charge me the same amount of money. And I'm sitting there. She looked at me. She goes, you be nice. <laughs> And I said, I'm not going to say anything. It's okay. And you know, it's silly. In that moment, I sat there and I was like, yeah, because what's my mission? To embody Jesus. To follow the guidelines in that regard. In that regard. To love people. Why would I let something silly like that ruin and compromise my witness for Christ? You know what I'm saying? It's a silly example, but I think sometimes we live in the life of silly examples. We can think about the big things, but it's the small things that can really trip us up sometimes. You know? So I'm sharing that with you because that's the purpose of being 
a follower of Christ. The church in motion is a church on mission. So God's calling you to be an effective witness. He's calling me to be an effective witness. And if we can do anything else or nothing else this morning, I want to share with you four different things that I think can challenge us to help us become an effective witness as the church in this time for such a time as this. Four things to be an effective witness. The number one thing that I have in order, um, not of importance, but just according to the scripture that we see. To be an effective witness, you need to know the resurrected Jesus. An effective witness knows the resurrected Jesus. That is absolutely imperative. If you and I want to be an effective witness, we need to know the resurrected Jesus. And I get this right out of verse 3. Let me show you the first half of verse 3 says, After his suffering, meaning Jesus, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Then it says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. This is what's so important about this. He showed himself to him, to them. They knew Jesus for years. They walked alongside Jesus for years. They heard his teachings. They saw the miracles. They understood how he would live and respond in different situations. And all of those things led to the cross where he died. How much of what they knew and what they believed and what they followed died at that cross? I don't know the answer to that, but we do know a little bit because we see how the apostles responded during his arrest. We see that they scattered during his arrest in the garden, right? We saw that John literally left, like ran out naked, like he was that scared. And he wrote about it himself. Talk about candid, being transparent. Peter denied Jesus three times while he was on trial refusing to acknowledge, even to a young girl, that he walked in relationship with Christ. So though we don't know 100% of what happened on the cross, I can tell you, and we see in Scripture, there was an an element of, of being upset, of being distraught, of being confused. How much of what they knew of Jesus died on that cross with him? I don't know, but I'm willing to bet some did. But that's not the end of the story, amen? Three days later... Three days later, he appears to women as the stone is rolled away. They run back to the disciples and say, he's gone. He's alive. He's not dead anymore. And the resurrected Jesus took everything that died and brought it back to life in them. And he didn't just hear a story. They didn't just hear a story of a resurrected Christ. They saw him. They listened to him. Thomas, who doubted and said, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to believe this unless I physically see him and put my hand in his side and touch the wounds in his hand. And Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, touch my wounds, touch my side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And I'm sharing this with you this morning because it's not enough to just know who Jesus was when he lived. We need to be reminded of the fact that everything he did was confirmed through the death and the resurrection. And it's the resurrection that God used to affirm that everything he said is right. Everything he said is true. Every authority he said that he claimed was absolutely accurate in Jesus' name. We can believe that today. And that truth of knowing the resurrected Christ, my friends, that's what changes people. There are people all over this world that know about Jesus I know people that are not followers of Christ that know more about Jesus than people that say they're followers of Christ. And can I tell you what? It doesn't change them at all. What changes them, what changes you, what changes me is not just knowing about Jesus. It's knowing him 
It's knowing the authority that comes through the resurrection power and to know he didn't just walk this earth as a good man. He didn't just speak words of kindness and truth. He didn't just proclaim the goodness of God and then get buried in the ground. No, he beat the grave and God rose him up from the dead and ascended him to heaven. And because of that, all of history has been changed and we can walk with a power and authority and a confidence that's greater than ourselves. This is the truth of the gospel and that's why knowing the resurrected Christ is so important. And I can tell you this because this is why this matters for me so much. Because I'm a human person that struggles with things that I wish I didn't struggle with. I get upset. I get confused. I doubt. I get discouraged. I can be depressed. I can get angry at people. And maybe you don't relate to any of those things and maybe you just have a denial issue. (laughs) But we wrestle with things, don't we? We wrestle with things. I struggle with things. Here's what I'm reminded, though. When I'm an effective witness of Christ, because I know the resurrected Jesus, I remember that Jesus had a heart for people. So I need to have a heart for people. I'm reminded that Jesus was one of, was, was, was a God on this earth, the God who demonstrated kindness to all mankind. I need to demonstrate kindness That he was patient, he was loving, he was compassionate, he was committed to holiness. Let's stop there for a minute. He was committed to a life of purity and holiness. And all of these things, he revealed the kingdom of God to people, spoke more about the eternal and the future than he talked about the present. He talked more about eternity and he didn't spend so much time talking about the present. And all of these things, if you add them all up, can feel overwhelming to go, yeah, but that was Jesus. He was the son of God. But he died and he rose from the grave and the spirit of God is deposited in all who believe. So if it feels overwhelming to you, that's because we're looking at it in our flesh. And when we look at it in the spirit, we can say the resurrected Jesus is the Jesus that we can model to the world, not because of who we are, but because of what he can do through us. Amen? This is so important for us to understand. These are the ways we become an effective witness. And when we remember the resurrected Christ, when we experience the resurrected power, our confidence level grows, not in us, but in him. Never in us, but always in him. Jesus rose from the grave, as someone once told me, and if he rose from the grave, he's in charge of the universe because nobody beats death. Nobody beats death. An effective witness knows the resurrected Jesus. The second thing an effective witness does this morning is submits to his kingship. Submits to his kingship. If you and I want to be an effective witness for Christ in this world and be the hands and feet of Christ, we need to submit to his kingship. Let's go back to verse 3. It says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then it says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God is the most popular thing Jesus ever talked about. Um, It is the favorite thing to talk about. 31 times Luke mentions it in the book of Luke, and six times he mentions it in the book of Acts. Jesus' purpose was to proclaim and to teach about the kingdom of God. But he uses the word spoke when Luke writes the word spoke here. And this is what spoke means and this is what spoke does not mean. Spoke doesn't mean he just casually talked to them about the kingdom of God. It says specifically it means to instruct someone with authority. He instructed his disciples after the resurrection with authority. So two things have to happen there. One... 
walk backwards. You have to have the authority to be able to actually speak that way. He had the authority from God because he beat the grave. But he instructed them. And for someone to be instructed, you need to be teachable. And for you to be teachable, you need to be humble. And to be humble, you need to be a student. Which means you need to submit yourself, and I need to submit myself to the kingship of Jesus Christ. So what do I have to do to be an effective witness? What do we have to do to be an effective witness? We need to ask ourselves, are we teachable? Are we humble? Do we have the faith like a child so that we can literally, or I could say figuratively, sit at the feet of Jesus and let him instruct us instead of us feeling like we know all the answers? Am I making sense this morning? I hope. I hope. An effective witness is going to show by example what it looks like to be Jesus. But we're going to show what it looks like, not because we're the teacher, but because we're the students. That our lives have been surrendered to Christ. Now think about the world that we live in again and ask yourself, has the world that we live in taught us and challenged us to be the best humble student you ever could be? Or does the world tell you to be the best everything you can be for yourself? That you're in charge or you're number one. You're the most important. Which way do you think our culture tells us to live? It always tells us to do the second versus the former. Of course, we need to be students. But many times that message of being a student is incorporated into the big term mission of fulfilling your own goals. Yes, we need to be students. We need to grow. We need to learn. Why? So we can accomplish everything we want to accomplish. What if we flip it around and say, no, it's to be the best student of this world so that God can use his church to be the most effective light and salt that he has created us to be. So it never at any point in time is it ever our will over God's, but it's the Lord's prayer, right? What did Jesus say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What? Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always being done in heaven. Is his will being done on earth? Well, the answer to that has a lot to do with how surrendered we are and whether we allow him to be the king of our lives. I want to be in charge. I want to rule my own life. Do you want to rule your own life? I mean, if we're being honest about that, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I mean, yeah. I mean, don't, don't judge me for that if you think that that's worth judging. But I don't know anybody that really just wants to be told what to do all the time. We want to make our own decisions. We, I mean, this is why I'm picking on teens today, so be careful. Um, this is why the world seems to identify with the idea that I'm 18, I'm an adult, I can do whatever I want. Okay, well, if you want adult privileges... You need to have adult what? Responsibilities. No, but I'm 18. I can do whatever I want. And I've heard that for years from different people and different students. Can I tell you, your age doesn't define your level of maturity. Not at all. And your level of freedom is not based on how old the government says you can do or not do something. It has a lot to do with how responsible you are to actually be responsible. But even still, take a step back and just think about that concept. It is resonating for people. It resonates with people to say, I've accomplished this goal. I'm now at this age. I can do whatever I want to do. I mean, my wife and I were thrilled to death when we got married and we could move and we could have an apartment and we go and do whatever we want. We look at each other and we'd be like, like, we could do whatever we want. This is so cool. 
We don't have to call anybody and ask for permission. We don't have to wonder if it's okay. We can do it. But then it sets in in the middle of it to be like, hey, like, well, we also have to deal with the consequences if things go bad. You know, like we can't just say like we want our freedom, but then we want someone to bail us out all the time. There is a responsibility that comes. But how many people would say they don't want their freedom? Of course people want their freedom. The thing that's the irony of the church, the paradox of Christianity, and Jesus talks about this, is that surrendering your life to Christ, surrendering your life to Christ, is not a recipe to lose your life. Jesus says if you want to save your life, you must what? Lose it. That's the paradox People think becoming a servant of God or a student of Jesus is a recipe for slavery. It's actually the key to freedom. Because we're then allowing the architect of our lives to make us into exactly what he wants us to be. Think about this, guys. Like, we don't know what our lives are supposed to be like. The architect does. So when we surrender ourselves to him, we're saying, I don't know how you've created me really to be. I need you to teach me. I need you to show me. I need to be available. And people look at it and go, you're giving your life. You need to live your own life. No, no, no. I'm not giving away my life for no reason. I'm laying my life down so that it can be saved. I'm giving away my worldly freedom so that I can experience the life that never ends. The life that Jesus came to give us, as he said in John 10. An effective witness knows the surrender of Jesus, submits to his kingship. The third thing, that an effective witness does, an effective witness relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. Relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. He told them, and we're not going to go there this morning, but Luke 24, 49, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they are clothed with power and on high. And that is a parallel to you see in Acts chapter 1 where he restates the same thing. Don't leave the town and try to accomplish what I'm asking you to do until you receive the power. And he says in 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. And he again reminds them, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. I'm giving you an impossible mission and an impossible task, but will only be accomplished if you understand that you need to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind that who he's talking to primarily are uneducated, everyday Galilean men. Some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, None of them were brilliant in the sense that we understand or would measure brilliant. And not only were they not the high elite educated people, and there's nothing wrong with education. Like There's this whole movement of people, especially in the charismatic Pentecostal circles, that throw education out the window because they say, we just need to be filled with the Spirit. And I'm like, it it doesn't work that way. Like The Apostle Paul was more educated than anyone you probably ever would meet in this day and age, and he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not look at one or the other. We need both. But the point we're trying to show here is that the people that Jesus told or chose were teachable. They were humble. They followed him and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they changed the world. They changed the world without airplanes. They changed the world without cell phones. They changed the world without satellites, without email. They changed the world without cars. They changed the world simply because they let the Spirit do the leading. Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? I know upon salvation, we see it in God's word, upon salvation, the Spirit of God will dwell in all who believe. And I hope you believe that because it's biblical. The Spirit of God dwells in all of us. But just because we have all the Spirit doesn't mean the Spirit has all of us. He wants to do more in you. And today I look at my own life, I look at spiritual gifts over the last years, 20, 30 years. The type of things that God did in me and used me for 20, 30 years ago are very different than what he could use me for today. 
Why? Because I've become better or stronger? No, I've become more submitted to what he's asked me to do. I've been more open to letting the Spirit teach me the things that I don't necessarily understand. There are some things that I would never have thought could have happened years and years ago, and yet God does this today at different times. And you've heard me talk about different stories about the Spirit speaking words of discernment or things that are speaking to people or people I've prayed over with things. This is not about elevating me at all because I look at it and I go, oh my goodness, I don't know anything. But here's what I do know. I know that there's a whole body of people in the Christian church, and that includes everyone sitting in this room that calls Jesus his Lord, that God wants to use in ways far beyond your greatest imaginations and expectations. He wants to use every single one of us. He can give you gifts and empower you in ways that you never thought were possible, and it only requires a filling of the Spirit and the nurturing of the Spirit and saying yes to him and less to the world. Well, what's the world mean? It means are you filling yourself with healthy things or polluted things? Are you filling yourself with holiness? Are you filling yourself with garbage and with junk? You know, I've known people that have walked in their relationship with Christ for years, decades, 20, 30, 40 years, and they've told me consistently over these years, God, you know, he tells me he's going to use me or he's giving me this gift or he's speaking this word into me and I'm waiting and I'm holding. But you know what they're not doing? Anything. They're not doing anything. They're waiting for God to do something and God just sitting there going, it's not me. Like, you got to put the car in drive and hit the gas. Like you got to do something if you expect to see me work. You can't just wait for me to come into the car and, you know, well, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, no, like he's telling you, like, drive. You need to drive. And trust me that I'm the one that's actually holding the wheel, that I'm going to show you where to go. Because I've seen people that have been walking with Jesus for decades, and, you know, they have these hopes and desires to see things happen in their lives. And they think, and I'm so cautious, but they think that the answer to that is if they just come to the right church service, if they just come again, if they just listen to the pastor again, if they just sit long enough, if they just sing the right song, God's going to do this. And I just want to debunk and demystify Holy Spirit-led spirituality. He lives in you. Feed him with the word separate unhealth and sin from your life and walk and see what he will do. Walk. And if you don't know how to do it, find someone who's around you who can walk alongside with you, who can show you just like a little child learning to talk, just like a little child learning to walk. You're going to fumble. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes over and over again. And guess what, guys? That's okay. I mean, I can't remember a time when my kids were learning to walk that they would like stand up and they would stumble. And I'd be like, you idiot. When are you going to get this right? Could you imagine if you were in a room with kids and adults and you saw this kid stand up and they're like, look, it's their first step. And they took a step and they fell over and you're like, what a moron. Every parent in the room would look at you and be like, you need to leave right now. That doesn't make any sense. Why are you mocking this child for trying to take a step? Or the first time that they talk, you know, say dad, dad. And they go, blah, blah. What's the matter with you? Why can't you get the words right? Because they're trying. You make the, they made the effort. And what does your heart do? It just says, oh, keep trying. Keep trying, right? Keep trying. This is the work of God's spirit in us. Keep walking. Keep talking. Keep walking. Well, the answer, listen, the answer isn't necessarily going to come by what wants, God wants to do right here this morning in this building. Sometimes it is. And there's stories of people. God touches people right where they are. I love that. But you have a whole lot more hours of your life outside of this room than you do in it. And you have a lot more opportunity to open your hands outside of this room than in it. 
And if you wake up every morning and your heart says, God, whatever you want to do in me today, I'm listening. However you want to use me this morning, I'm listening. You know what? I'm not going to fill myself with the filth and the garbage that the world keeps telling me to fill myself with. I'm not going to listen to these things. I'm not going to pollute my mind. I'm not going to give my time towards practicing and giving things that mean absolutely nothing. I don't need to build the next level of that video game. I don't need to listen and watch the next episode or season of that show. I don't know what it is for you. I'm just saying if we choose to fill ourselves with God, do you think for a moment God isn't going to look at you and go, that's my brother, that's my son, that's my daughter. Oh, let's go for a walk. Let's go for an adventure. That's what he did with the New Testament church. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. For the impossible to become possible, we need to be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. The last thing I want to mention this morning as the worship team comes as we get ready to close is that an effective witness also lives expecting Jesus' return. If we are going to be effective witnesses in this world, we need to live expecting Jesus' return. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me, or in 11, I'm sorry. After he said this, beginning in verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who had been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Why do I share that for you? Because Jesus gave his last words. He left. And as he was leaving, his angels said to the people that were watching, he's coming back. He's coming back. And you know what's beautiful about that? There was a mindset that began in the early church. The first church that was birthed under that moment. The mindset was the same Jesus we walked with the same Jesus who died, the same Jesus who was resurrected and resurrected and ascended is the same Jesus who's coming back for us. He's coming back to change everything permanently. He's coming back to right the wrongs. He's coming back to fully, death has been destroyed, but there's a window of time that death and the devil is doing what he's going to do. The same Jesus is going to fix everything. And when he comes back, it will all be done. And there was an imminent mindset that these men had and these women had. And what do I mean by imminence? It means every moment of their lives they could get up and wonder, is today the day Jesus is coming? Is today the day our Heavenly Father is returning? Is today the day that He's going to finish what He said? And if you don't believe me, I encourage you, go through the New Testament and you will see in every single book or at least every author who wrote in the New Testament, in the different New Testament books, you will find every single author make reference to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. They believed it was going to happen in their lifetime. They did. It's indisputable when you look at it. They believed it was going to happen in their lifetime. So every day they got up and they said, we have a mission to share the gospel. We have a mission to proclaim the word. We have a mission to share. We don't, listen, we do not have a mission to the world to tell the world what we're against. The church has this backwards sometimes. We need to post and social media and tell everyone in the world, we're against this, we're against this, we're against this. You don't see examples in scripture where the Christian church told the world everything they were against. What you see is the church telling the people who don't know Christ who they know. What you see is the church of Jesus Christ 
proclaiming the gospel and the good news of Jesus to everyone who doesn't know him. That's what you see. Where you see the church speaking about where they're against is when the church is speaking to the church. When the church is speaking to believers and they're saying, here's what it means to live holy. Here's what it means to live pure. Here's what it means to walk in relationship with God. Don't do these things, brothers and sisters. Do these things. And that's where the correction was put in place. But we have messed this up in the church of Jesus Christ where we think being an effective witness means standing on our platform and telling everyone who doesn't know Jesus what we're against. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is about who we know. The gospel is about who died for us. The gospel is about a living hope we sang about earlier this morning. You hear me? This is the gospel. That when you're dead in your sin and you feel like there's no hope, when you feel like there's nothing you and I can do to get out of the mess of the world, that this world is spinning out of control, it's in the palm of the Savior's hand. And what he did for you and what he did for me, he can do for the world. That's the gospel. We speak good news. We live it with our lives because his return, excuse me, his return is imminent. My hope for me would be that if we wrapped up this service today and I went home and my phone buzzed and it was a text message and it was from God, you know, it said Yahweh, you know, 777. And he said, hey, Paul, buckle up. I'm coming back tomorrow. My hope would be that I wouldn't change one thing about my life. Can I honestly say that to you this morning? No, I can't. But if I felt like every day that text may come, how different would my today look to prepare for the tomorrow? If I really felt like tomorrow he was returning, what phone calls would I be making What doors would I be sitting at this this evening? What knocking would I persist at? What messages would I be giving to people? What, What opportunities seeking forgiveness would I go to? What relationships would I restore? I think about that. My heart grieves when I think about people that have let offenses sit in their hearts between other brothers and sisters. And I go, if Jesus was coming back tomorrow, don't you think he'd want to know that you're in right relationship with your brother and sister? That doesn't mean that you have to be great friends, but don't you think that he would want that for you? Why would we delay? What if tomorrow is the last day? Well, theologically, Paul, all the whole world needs to hear, stop. The first century church thought it was happening in their lifetime. And they preached forgiveness, hope, mercy. They talked to brothers and sisters about holiness and walking in unity and bringing the world the message of Christ. And they did it with professing the word and accompaniment with signs and wonders. Why? Because the message of Christ is the mission of the church. So as we close in prayer this morning, the worship team just spends a few moments with these songs, can I just invite you to consider the question, are you on mission? Are you on mission this morning? Have you lost the mission? Have you forgotten the intimacy of the beginnings? And do you need to make that shift? I don't know where you are. You might be right on point saying I'm with you. And you know, there are times that I'm there and there are times that I'm not. Here's what I know. As we walk through this series together, if we avail ourselves to the work of God, we are going to find that the mission he has for you and for me will take us places we never thought were ever possible. We will see breakthroughs in our own lives. We will see breakthroughs in the lives of others. And we will see a world 
we're never going to see a world that fully embraces the messiahship of Jesus on this side of eternity. We're never going to see that. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. He did miracles, they murdered him. But what we will see is a church where people may look at the church and say, I don't understand you. You're very passionate about something that doesn't make sense to me. And they may say those things, but you know what they're not going to say is, I could see this Jesus looking like that church. Because a church on mission looks like Jesus, fully like Jesus. Are you on mission this morning? Take a moment. Maybe would you stand with us, please, as we get ready to sing? Bow your heads and just ask yourself, are you on mission? What is God talking to you through his Holy Spirit this morning?